Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Shows like Dancing with the Stars, Survivor, and The Bachelor have dominated the ratings charts in America for quite some time. The genre of reality TV has also given birth to media influencers like Kim Kardashian, RuPaul, and even the former president, Donald Trump. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This week on the show, the surprising ways that reality TV affects us and what those programs expose about our society. Reality TV has been a fixture in American homes for well over three decades, but some of its earliest iterations would be shocking to modern viewers. Here's a moment from the 1992 premiere of The Real World New York. House members Kevin and Eric step outside to have a conversation on race. It's like maybe these are, you know, ridiculous examples, but everything, if you look at like all professions and stuff like that, and, and you look at the best in like these certain fields, like, like not only just sports, because that's just athletics, black people are by far dominant over white. In all sports. Yo, yo, listen. <laughs> I mean, first of all, you start off with stereotypes. You're just like, you know, you're superior in sports and entertainment. That's what a lot of people, white people think that's all black people can do. You know what I'm saying? I'm not an athlete, man. I'm not a singer. That. You know what I'm saying? I'm not a rapper. I'm a writer. Have you ever right. met a black writer before? Have you ever met a black writer before? I mean, I've I never, you know, actually had the conversation or been friends with them. My point is exactly, man. <laughs> so did you be a fandom that some kid would be writing, a black kid be writing for Rolling Stone, the New York Times, or all that other stuff? You know what I'm yeah. saying? Reality shows have certainly changed quite a bit from those earlier years of hashing out issues of race and discrimination on a front stoop. But how do those programs reflect our society? To help us understand, I'm joined by Danielle J. Lindemann. She's Associate Professor of Sociology at Lehigh University, and she's author of the new book, True Story, What Reality TV Says About Us. Danielle, welcome to Disrupted. Thanks so much for having me. You are a sociologist, and so much of your scholarship focuses on gender, sexuality, and culture, but you are also a big fan of reality television. So share with our listeners, what first inspired you to write about reality TV? I am both a sociologist and a fan of reality TV, guilty on both counts. So people sometimes ask when I started researching reality TV, and I say my whole life, or at least since I was a teenager and I first discovered the real world. I've been teaching a course about reality TV um, at Lehigh University, where I work, and it's always a really popular course because it's reality TV, right? Um, And I always thought, you know, this would make a really great book. Um, We pair episodes of reality TV with kind of classical sociological readings and talk about what these shows can teach us about the world around us. And I always thought, well, that could be really interesting um, in book form. So it all sort of stemmed from this course I teach at Lehigh. You mentioned discovering the real world. And, you know, when I think of reality TV, because it's such an expansive genre from Japanese game shows to the British baking show is really popular in my house. But when I think of reality TV, it goes back to this pivotal moment of discovering the real world and Pedro Zamora 
and seeing his battle through the HIV AIDS crisis and the ways that this show that seems so different from my everyday life became formative. What do you think about, you know, you mentioned the real world. What are the other shows that you say, I'm a real fan of this show because of all the things that we can learn? Oh, well, I'm a real fan of any reality TV show because I think we can learn something really from any of them. Um, so, I mean, the real world was really formative for me. And again, I think similarly to you, it's because it's these kind of really interesting, creative people who are probably not anything like myself, but it kind of traffics in broad archetypes. So you can always, because always kind of one character who you can kind of grab onto and say, that's most like me. And a lot of reality TV kind of traffics in these archetypes, right? Like the smart one, the shy one, the pretty one. So you can kind of pick one person who, even if they're kind of zany people in these imaginative scenarios, you can say this person is most like me. But I, I think there are a lot of reality shows that can teach us about ourselves um, if we know where to look. So not just like the real world, um, which I agree, you know, Pedro Zamora um, really that, that, you know, was a pivotal moment for reality TV, but also, you know, the Real Housewives can teach us about gender, about social class, about race as well. You know, RuPaul's Drag Race uh, can teach us something about gender and how we all perform gender every day. The Bachelor, even though that's a zany show in a lot of ways and we're not, you know, all competing for a man with 17 other girls or women, um, can also, you know, teach us something about contemporary courtship and, again, the role that gender plays in contemporary courtship. So I really think almost any reality show can teach us about ourselves if we know where to look. There will be some people who will hear the term reality TV. They will hear that this episode is about reality television and they will dismiss it as being, oh, this is this superficial fluff. I have no interest in that. I'm a serious connoisseur of culture. I have no interest. But your book is really about challenging us to take a deeper analytical lens when we think about reality TV, when we think about culture and the ways that those intersections play out in our lives. How do you define reality TV, given how expansive the genre can be, but also, as you said, that it's it's fertile ground to ask and explore all of these questions? Yeah, it's interesting that reality TV continues to be this kind of stigmatized genre. And I think there are you know, a few different reasons for that. But, you know, as I point out in the book, I, I think it's unwise not to take reality TV seriously. It's now almost half of all TV Many more people are watching reality TV than not watching reality TV. And there's a wealth of evidence that these images that we see on our screen affect the way that we move and think in the world. It's a cultural juggernaut. So you don't have to like it. You don't have to love it the way that I do. And by the way, I love it, but I also can recognize that it's really problematic in a lot of ways. So you don't have to like reality TV, but I think it's it would be wrong or unwise to say that the genre is not worth studying or is unimportant. Um, obviously. But in terms of defining reality TV, yeah, it is this kind of sprawling genre. I encounter a lot of people who say they don't watch reality TV, and then they'll later you'll find out that they only watch The Great British Baking Show, or they only watch some show that they don't consider to be reality TV. I, I define it pretty broadly as any television that ostensibly features people acting as themselves, even if there is some scripting right or manipulation involved. They act as themselves. And it's intended mainly to entertain rather than inform. So like news programs would be out because ostensibly they're meant to inform rather than entertain or documentaries would be out. Um, But those are really kind of the two key criteria. I think it's interesting when you just said that 
being a fan of reality TV or watching reality TV has this sort of social stigma, right? That, oh, look at all these horrible things that are happening or the ways that these tropes are playing out. Why would you watch that? But maybe there are people who feel the same way about watching professional sports, that you know there's all this exploitation, all this class-based engagement behind the scenes, but there is something about that genre of sports that people can find entertaining and find something that they connect to, even if it doesn't represent everything and all of their interests. And what I also think is interesting is that too often we think of reality TV as being a new phenomenon, But you say, no, this actually goes back to shows like Candid Camera and The Dating Game, but that there is a divide between that sort of um, historic approach to reality TV and the more contemporary shows. And you date the contemporary period back to 1992 and the real world New York. Why do you see that as this key starting point for how we envision and engage reality TV today? Yeah, I mean, so first of all, I think the connection, the parallel to sports is so interesting because there's so much pushback against reality TV, even though it's paradoxical because most most people, a majority, a vast majority of people are watching these shows. And we bond with other people based on these shows, yet we still stigmatize them. But for, to me, the difference between sports and reality TV is that gender they're gendered differently. Sports tend to be associated with men and masculinity, and reality TV tends to be associated with women on the programs, women consuming the programs. And we tend to devalue cultural products related to women, like literature, uh, you know, music, movies. So um, I don't think that's the sole reason why people devalue reality TV, but I think it's a huge part of it when people are saying, well, there's no intellectual merit there. What's the intellectual merit? And I'm not no shade to sports, right? But like sometimes we just watch things because we enjoy them. And that's seemingly okay in one context, but not okay in another. And I think that's absolutely gendered. But I think I may have not answered your question. What was it? No, you did. And I think that gender piece of it is important, which I think takes us back to why you see the real world New York in 1992 as being sort of this turning point. And I raise that point because... It was one of the the few moments in television where you had a cast of men and women together. There was some attempt to get people that were relatable in some ways, although there were still those archetypal characters, but it brought men and women together and it meant that the viewership also reflected that in some way. So given that context and that framing, why the real world New York as the turning point? I do say I don't think we can pinpoint a sort of any one start to reality TV. Different people will say different things. And reality TV, like anything else, is a social construct. Um, so trying to sort of narrow it and clearly delineate it is pretty hazy. I think a lot of people would say that the real world is the start because the real world sort of pioneered a lot of the facets of reality TV that we see today like the serialized structure where it's multiple episodes and their narrative arcs unfolding over multiple episodes, the kind of talking head convention where now we see on um, fictional shows, right? Like The Office and Parks and Recreation where people are, you see people talking about the action that's unfolding um, on the screen. So yeah, so the real world really pioneered um, a lot of those kind of interventions. And it is true, right? There were not only like women and men together living in the house, but you also had, you know, people of color living with white people and a gay cast member, right? And so you're, you were seeing represent, which maybe today doesn't seem that earth shattering, but at the time, 
for a lot of people, they were seeing representation that they hadn't really seen before. I think about that show and the moment in the show where Kevin Powell and his castmate Julie get into this debate about race and racism in the United States. And Julie, coming from a particular part of the South, seeing someone with, and and I'm dating myself here, Danielle, seeing someone with a pager, where she called it a beeper, right? And saying like, why do you have a beeper? Do you sell drugs? And she didn't mean to be offensive, but it was that that norm and that stereotype that she had, that the only people who have this communication device are those who are involved in selling drugs and the debate that happened. I don't know that we were having those kinds of debates in real time on television up to that point, particularly with younger people who said, wait a minute, why would she say that? And others saying, well, I'm glad she said it because I was thinking it, but didn't feel like I could have that engagement. And that's why I think in in your book, what's so interesting about it is that you connect this cultural occurrence in the real world to longstanding sociologists theorists who are connecting these pieces. I don't know that people read a book on reality TV and expect to encounter Durkheim and C. Wright Mills, but you do it effortlessly to bring that together. How then does the real world reality TV help you connect to some of these more traditional sociology approaches? Those shows really were quite revolutionary, right? Um, especially, you know, my, I've written about this before myself as like a white girl growing up in suburban Long Island. Like nobody was having conversations about race, about class, about gender, about sexuality. But those were things that were vastly structuring our social worlds. Um, and to sort of see people on TV actually explicitly having those conversations was really, that's really what drew me in. So I guess I was kind of a sociologist before I even knew what sociology was at the time. But especially a show like Real World, right, where, again, you have these archetypal characters. They're coming from very different backgrounds. And that's part of the, the sort of the drama and the conflict, right? You have people from very different backgrounds now forced to kind of live in one place. But when you have this, these, these people from different backgrounds sort of patched work artificially together, you really start to understand the sort of roles of their social backgrounds, of their demographic characteristics in shaping who they are and shaping their own experiences. So like, even though a show like The Real World is artificial in some ways, because it's just kind of casting people who are interesting and putting them together, it really shows these kind of longstanding social inequalities, these demographic differences that have existed um, within the United States, you know, for centuries. That was Lehigh professor Danielle Lindemann. She's author of the new book, True Story, What Reality TV Says About Us. When we return, more from our conversation with Lindemann. We'll hear about the impact reality TV can have on how we perceive class and how the lines are blurring between reality TV and real life. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Hartford HealthCare recently celebrated the opening of the Ridge Recovery Center in Wyndham. 
Christy Scott, Vice President of Clinical Operations, describes this new state-of-the-art destination for healing. Individuals will come if they're suffering from substance use disorder and get individualized treatment. They can stay up to three to four weeks and receive family therapy, individual therapy, group therapy, and lots of other holistic care like yoga, trail walking, acupuncture. So it's going to be a great place for people to come and heal. For those seeking recovery, finding it close to home can sometimes be challenging. Many individuals travel to Florida and other states that have more treatment centers, so we're hoping by doubling our capacity at Hartford HealthCare, that individuals can stay in their home state with their family and support systems close by. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're talking to sociologist Danielle J. Lindemann about the many ways that reality TV holds a mirror for our society. Lindemann is associate professor at Lehigh University and author of True Story, What Reality TV Says About Us. Some reality shows like The Real World felt accessible to most people who watched. The cast and their struggles felt relatable. They looked like people we could know. But many of the shows that dominate the market today follow the lives of wealthy Americans and the exclusive lives that they live. In her book, Lindemann connects shows like Keeping Up with the Kardashians to the teachings of German philosopher Karl Marx. Marx famously theorized a class system that separated by individuals with means, or the bourgeoisie, and the working class, the proletariat. I asked Lindemann how these concepts connect to reality TV and how they expose how we view class in our society. Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways, reality TV kind of takes us on a tour through the class system in a way that scripted TV doesn't often do. I mean, granted, it doesn't often show like very poor people. And when it does, it's they're sort of usually in service to the narrative of wealthier people like the Kardashians are volunteering in a soup kitchen or something like that. But otherwise, it really does kind of take us on a tour of these different kind of class positions from the kind of self-described redneck, quote unquote, family on Honey Boo Boo. Um, to, you know, the ostensibly moneyed, we can debate whether they actually have money, but real housewives, on the other hand, or the Hiltons, right? And so you see these different class positions, but you also sort of understand the kind of cultural narratives and stereotypes that we tell to keep that class system in place, right? Like, the way that the Honey Boo Boo cast is portrayed is very different from the way that wealthier people, like someone like Donald Trump on The Apprentice, is portrayed. Um, and, you know, I think that's to some extent by design. We have all these stereotypes about various marginalized groups, which are right there on reality TV, like on blast. But um, particularly low income, lower income people, we have these stereotypes that they're just, you know, they have uncontrollable bodies, they, they eat horrible food, they like are uncivilized. And so by sort of, they're, they're controlling images, right? So by kind of promulgating these images, it helps us kind of, oh, feel better about the fact that there is such inequality, right? Oh, those people kind of belong over there because they're that type of person. So it shows us these kind of pernicious really stereotypes that we tell about certain marginalized groups in order to kind of uphold these systems of power. 
It's interesting because reality TV for some people is a form of escape. And I'm thinking particularly during the lockdowns of the pandemic where we couldn't really go outside, we couldn't really interact with other people. In some ways, reality TV became this escape to see, well, someone is being able to get outside and enjoy life and have some semblance of normalcy. But at the same time, it can shape how we view people in these positions. And you just mentioned former President Donald Trump and The Apprentice. And I don't think we can really talk about modern reality TV without talking about the cultural behemoth that The Apprentice became. Everyone wanted to be on that show, not just to you know have this opportunity to advance in business, but to be proximate to that wealth, to be proximate to that symbol of success. And even though we are now learning that much of that was a facade, much of what we thought was wealth is actually crumbling, it did have an impact on how Donald Trump was perceived by people who had not encountered him before. How do you think that played out politically, this sort of reality TV cultural space that he existed in, and then how it shaped the reaction of voters and and even people more broadly in politics. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I think people often say reality TV is like an equal opportunity offender. You know, like every group is stereotyped. Maybe, but white men are not stereotyped that much on reality TV. When when you see them, they're often kind of in positions of power. They're the mean judges on competitive reality shows. There are not a lot of instances that I can point to where they're really being poked fun at the way that other groups are being poked fun at. And I think Trump kind of rode the crest of that, right? So when you saw him on The Apprentice, it wasn't in a way that poked fun at him. He might be poking fun at other people on the show, but he was in a position of power, wearing a power suit, sitting behind a desk, making important decisions, being portrayed as, again, right, proximate to, to wealth, very wealthy and very important, right? And, you know, did that put him in the White House? I don't think we can ever know. I think it's reasonable to believe that it helped because it brought him into the public. I mean, he was sort of in the public eye before that, but it really was this juggernaut that really barreled him into the public eye in a way that he hadn't been before. And it was a favorable image of him, most importantly. So again, I don't know if we can ever say that would he have been president if he weren't on The Apprentice, but I do think it's reasonable to believe that that helped, which is one of the reasons, again, why I think it's important to pay attention to reality TV, whether you like the genre or not. I want to go back to something that you mentioned before the comment about Donald Trump, but I think it's related here in terms of what people see and what they perceive the connection to be. And that is the concept of exploitation, of some people feeling like Reality TV is exploiting people who are vulnerable in some ways, whether that is vulnerability based on uh, social class, social standing or economic class. You mentioned the Honey Boo Boo reference there. I'm thinking of, you know, Tiger King. I'm also thinking of the Teen Mom series of people saying, listen, by creating a reality TV franchise based on this, you are not only lofting people who are vulnerable, but you are some ways incentivizing that exploitation in the name of awareness. How do you respond to that idea that reality TV just exploits people who are vulnerable and has these sort of negative consequences? Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely true that reality TV does exploit people who are vulnerable, right? 
And, you know, I kind of say in the end of my book, I, I sort of look at reality TV as kind of a t cultural tax for what it can teach us. And I think that it is important um, as a kind of cultural tool to help us learn more about ourselves. And I do think there are positive facets of reality TV. And I, I wouldn't be such a fan of reality TV if I thought it was just exploitative, but it clearly has that exploitative kind of side to it, especially again, right? It's not, it's not really the white men who are being poked fun at, poked fun of and exploited on reality TV. Oftentimes it's people in precarious or marginalized positions, but I think it's interesting to think about why we like to watch that because again, it helps to kind of solidify these these large scale inequalities that exist within our society and the kind of narratives that we tell in order to keep them going. So yeah, I would I would totally agree that reality. I mean, and there there are certain shows that I think are too exploited that even myself I I have a hard time watching and I don't watch. All right, I I, I watch some of them for the book just so I could analyze them, right? But I don't take any pleasure. Um, in watching in watching shows that are incredibly exploited, like Cops, for instance, I I have a hard time watching that show. You know, the other thing I I think of there in terms of the exploitation and and shows that I can't watch because it just seems so crucial to being exploiting people who are facing difficult times are all of the shows about obesity and, you know, my 600 pound life. And, and it seems like it's a way of making fun of people who are really in a vulnerable state. But the other piece of reality TV to this, Danielle, is that it can also highlight behaviors. It can highlight the ways that people live that is that are often hidden and stigmatized and to then see that on a doomsday preppers or my strange addiction or hoarders, you realize the challenges that people are contending with every day and how the weight of that shame and that invisibility can become destructive. So reality TV becomes a way to look at, you know, the ways we traditionally think of deviance, as you mentioned in your book, as how can we actually help people and support people to live their best lives, even if the way that they live their life is different from what we think of as quote unquote normal or standard? How do you think that reality TV can teach us those lessons and maybe in some ways actually foster compassion and humanity? Yeah, you know, as I say, I, I ultimately am an evangelist for reality TV. I think, first of all, it's not going anywhere anytime soon. And I think I think it can be a tool for good if implemented in the right way. You know, as I said, I don't I, I certainly recognize the problems that exist in reality TV, the stereotypes that it promulgates. But if you just look at reality TV, I mean, as you mentioned, right, it kind of shines a light onto areas of the social landscape that we don't often see in other forms of media. It's historically been much more diverse than other forms of TV in terms of different sexualities, right? Pedro Zamora, right? In terms of racial diversity. And yes, often that diversity takes the form of, of stereotypical representations and that's absolutely prob problematic. But there is something to be said for representation um, in and of itself. So I think reality TV, it's interesting because I, one, I said earlier, one thing that distinguishes it from like documentary or news is that it's not meant to be educational, but I think it can be educational, as you said, right? I think it exposes us to areas of life we never would have seen before. You know, just a silly example, I know everything about the practice of drag that I know from watching RuPaul's Drag Race, and it's fabulous. And I wouldn't know any of that if it weren't for reality TV. But I think you're right that it can 
cause us to extend more compassion to people that we maybe hadn't seen as full people before, before we saw them on our TV screens. And that's sort of one of the things that happened with Pedro Zamora, right? When he passed away, then President Bill Clinton said that, you know, he gave a human face to the AIDS epidemic. So he was this, he was really like the first gay man that many of us got to quote unquote know, you know, coming into our living rooms every week. And we saw him as a whole person. He wasn't the stereotype. He had foibles. He had different types of relationships. We saw him with his partner, right? So I think kind of exposing us to kind of all those differences that we probably wouldn't see if it weren't for reality TV, it can be a tool for good. It can be a tool for good. And some might say it can be a tool for conformity, that it may push people to conform to a particular standard. So let's think of the biggest loser, for example, right? Everyone should be in a healthy state. Everyone should should live their lives in a way that promotes their health, their wellness, and whatever that looks like for individuals. But we also hear the horror stories from people saying, what I had to do for that show or the pressure that I face after the show to continue that because now people see me and they know, oh, you were the person who lost 200 pounds. Why are you in the drive through line at McDonald's, right? So that notion of conformity and the visibility of that, how do we address that? That at the same time, we're creating a platform for difference, but some people still feel pressure to not be different. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think in some ways, as I say in the book, reality TV shows us how conservative we are, even though it's this zany genre with these outrageous people in bizarre situations. It really shows us how narrowly we think about acceptability, right? What is the acceptable way to look? What is what is a, a legitimate family look like? What is the acceptable way for a woman to behave? So it's this paradox, right? Whereas these zany shows, they can't have anything to do with ourselves. But ultimately, what it comes down to at their core is they're extremely, extremely conservative and trying to get people to fit into these um, these really tiny boxes. It's interesting you mentioned The Biggest Loser. There was a study that showed that people who watched that show versus an episode of like a nature show came out of just one episode with significantly more fat phobia than the people who were exposed to the control. So yeah, I mean, again, People say reality TV shouldn't be taken seriously, but it's clearly doing something to us as viewers and the way that we go out and kind of navigate the world. But it's also reflecting us, right? And the narrow the way that we think about acceptable bodies. There's just this one kind of narrow paradigm that we all kind of have to fit into. And a lot of the kind of weight loss shows, makeover shows, right, are really just all about, okay, someone has gone out of the boundaries of this narrow paradigm that we consider to be acceptable. Let's yank them back in. Let's figure out how to get them back um, into the fold. So I absolutely agree that those shows are problematic, but I think they're also reflecting, right, this problematic aspect of our broader society. It's professor and author of True Story, What Reality TV Says About Us, Danielle J. Lindemann. After the break, Lindemann tells us why celebrity court cases have become must-see TV for Americans and the biggest takeaways from her book. This is Disrupted. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. 
The jury has spoken. Uh, our audience has been here most of the morning waiting to see the verdict, and lots of people, as you saw, had some pretty strong reactions. Obviously, you're very happy. I'm very happy for his family, for his children. I'm very happy. I'm also very happy. I think justice was served. Mm -hmm. We'll try to let you have not everyone here is happy, however. Not everyone here is happy. I, I notice that you are not. No, I'm not happy. I just think it's, it's just unfair. They know I feel so bad for her. She's in, I just feel like she's rolling over in her grave. And, and he got, she said if he ever did it, he would get away with it. That's what she said. And he, he knows what he did. He did we that. will be right back. That was audio from the Oprah Winfrey show back in 1995. Winfrey was speaking with audience members following the jury's decision in the criminal trial of O.J. Simpson. Over the course of more than two years, the Simpson trial became appointment viewing. According to Time magazine, 57% of the American public tuned in to that trial, and they wanted to hear whether Simpson would be convicted or found not guilty in the murder of his ex-wife, Nicole Brown Simpson. In the years since that trial, the lines between reality TV and real life have blurred. And we've seen it over the past few months with the internet going into a frenzy over the defamation lawsuit between Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. But why are these court cases so enthralling for us? Sociologist Danielle Lindemann is author of True Story, What Reality TV Says About Us. I asked her what parts of reality TV have started to seep into our society. Yeah, I mean, I think that we've been watching reality TV for so many decades now that it, it has really clearly shaped the way that we negotiate with the world. Um, you can even look at someone, not to go back to Donald Trump, but his presidency, right? The way that he conducted his presidency was really kind of using a lot of the conventions and procedures of reality TV to, to great effect, a fact, right? I mean, to not great effect, depending on who you ask, but um, you know what I mean? To, to, to a fact, right? Like he was really a master at using these, you know, cliffhangers and little sound bites to really like, get what he wanted out of that presidency. So yeah, I, I think it's really interesting to think about the Amber Heard Johnny Depp trial. It, it, in some ways it, it, is, it is like a throwback. I, in some ways I'm almost surprised that so many people are, are sort of gathering around it because there's so much more media to gather around now and we don't have as long of an attention span um, anymore. But it does seem like in some ways like very 90s, right, that everyone's kind of following this trial. And even if you don't want to follow the trial, it's like right there. I mean, the difference is, right, that now like you you can't really turn away like reality TV in general. Even if you don't watch the Kardashians, you end up knowing who the Kardashians, you know, you can name some Kardashians, right? Most, most of my students can name more Kardashians than Supreme court justices. And that's not just because that's not to throw my students under the bus. That's just because they're really in the cultural ether. So I think the Amber Heard Johnny Depp trial really showed how in the cultural ether, these reality moments are, where even if you're not watching, you log on to Facebook or Twitter and it's right there or YouTube, there's a clip of it, right? So I, I think these reality moments in the past, maybe we had the option of kind of turning away. And now if you're like at all plugged in, you don't have the option of turning away and you end up knowing things that you didn't even set out to know about these people on these shows. 
I mean, I, I think it's definitely a ubiquitous feature of our society and our culture. And as you said, it's not going away. And it's interesting the ways that, as you said, and I want to go back to this point, that your students could name more members of the Kardashian family than others. And some people may say, oh, that's so horrible. You should know your elected officials. And other people may say, no, what has the greatest impact on my life in terms of where I feel like I can plug in? And does that say more about our inability to welcome young people into a space as opposed to their unwillingness to be a part of that? And I want to take it back even further because this idea that reality TV is everywhere, that it has this impact on different parts of our lives in ways that we may or may not recognize. Danielle, I want to put you on the spot a bit here because I've read that you reference Project Runway in your wedding vows. The whole time that I read that, I thought, okay, what line could it be that she's using? Is it a, a Tim line or a Heidi line? Share with us that connection between Project Runway and your vows. Which one do you think it was? Oh, I don't want to be wrong. Just let us know. No, I, so I think we point, we wrote our own vows and I, we pointed out that, you know, my, my now husband who does not care at all about reality TV, but interestingly ends up knowing things about reality TV before I do because he get, gets up and reads the newspaper and the Washington Post is telling you what the Kardashians are ate for breakfast this morning now at this point. It's really in the ether that, you know, he was so willing to sit with me through these shows and he learned phrases like make it work. So that was the phrase that we used. Um, but it was really just about how like sweet he was to kind of indulge me in my reality TV obsession, despite the fact that I don't think he personally sees the appeal of these shows at all. But I think that is the essence of a healthy, successful relationship. You make it work. And even the interests that may not be yours, you support your partner in doing that. That's a way to, and I love that that was the line because that was the one that I thought, but it also means that you and I share a passion for reality TV. And because we are both academics, I love it because we push back against the norms and the stereotypes about what is acceptable or not. I love that. I love encountering other academics who have a zeal for reality TV. Not that everyone has to. Um, but it's, it's whenever at a conference or something, someone confesses to me that they secretly like reality TV is, Ooh, it gets, I get so excited. I think there are more of us than society would lead us to believe. But again, you can connect Marx and Mills and Durkheim to reality TV. So it is a high art of academia. As we think about your book, your work more broadly, we think about all of these things coming together. I know that in the path of your research, you learned a lot. So share with our listeners, what was the thing that you learned that you see as being the most important or the most surprising as you were doing this work? Yeah, I mean, so there were little things I learned along the way that, you know, just looking at studies of this genre, like kind of wading into media studies, you know, that people who watch reality TV are more likely to go hot tubbing on dates, more likely to drink alcohol, just, just interesting little stuff like that. But I think really my big takeaway from my research for the book, and I didn't go in thinking this, it was, it kind of came to me more inductively, was again, this idea that these are zany shows featuring wacky people and who may not remind you of yourself at all um, in some ways, 
But at the end of the day, they show us how conservatively we think about things like gender, race, sexuality, class, what's a family, what kind of pair of pants are appropriate to buy, and kind of we're all how we're all kind of hemmed in. By conservative, I don't necessarily mean politically conservative. I mean thinking about the world in really kind of narrow and unyielding ways. Um, and so to me, that was kind of my biggest takeaway, that these shows are zany in a lot of respects, but they can sort of teach us how retrograde we are in kind of our assumptions and our practices. As we come to the close of our time together, I want to reference a recent piece that you wrote for Literary Hub. And you argue in that piece that reality TV is becoming boring, but that boring isn't such a bad thing. Why do you think that these programs have, you know, abandoned some of those flashier gimmicks and become boring? Well, oh, so when I wrote that, I was really responding to shows that kind of had to become boring because of pandemic restrictions. So like The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, not this season, but last season, a lot of it was just them kind of sitting around and like Kyle's house in La Quinta just having conversations, which really kind of takes you back to the original real world. Now we have these real world homecoming shows where it's just like people sitting around, like having these deep conversations about race and gender, um, which to me is a sociologist, you know, I just eat that up. I think that's fascinating. And I didn't think that that season of, of Real Housewives of Beverly Hills was boring at all. But again, reality TV is such a sprawling genre. So there absolutely are shows out there. With, you know, people are dating in bunkers and wearing prosthetic noses and getting married before they can even see each other. And, you know, that kind of wacky side of reality TV is still existing. But at the same time, you have this kind of quieter side of reality TV, which evidently still has the capacity to draw in people like myself. The thing that I love about reality TV is that it's a genre with such an expansive spectrum that literally offers something for every interest. Danielle J. Lindemann is Associate Professor of Sociology at Lehigh University. She's author of the new book, True Story, What Reality TV Says About Us. Danielle, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You can find links to Lindemann's work at our website. It's ctpublic.org slash disrupted. Disrupted is produced by Jane Scoble-Wolf and Katie Tularski. And before we go, please make sure to subscribe to Disrupted wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Disrupted and Connecticut Public. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean, thanking you for listening and supporting.